another world, another time, in the age of wonder. You are listening to Trial by Stone. Trial by Stone! Dea, Tea, Dera, Tea. Your vital essence, the Dark Crystal. Kida, Kida. Come, come, see for yourself. Aru, Garu. How very interesting. Dea, Tea. I feel the song of Thra in my heart. Now go, you heroes of Thra. Hello and welcome to Trial by Stone, the Dark Crystal podcast. I'm your host, Philip. I'm Jamie. Hi. Hi there. Hey, I'm Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> we always have fun doing these little openers. It's like when I try to, um, you know, let, let's get let's get each other to say each other's names sort of thing um, for fun. But yeah, I mean, today, you know, we are discussing about, of course, the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, episode three. And I think this episode title is called What Was Sundered and Undone. And um, this episode was written by Vivian Lee. So we're just going to keep talking about the Dark Crystal as we're always going to talk. I mean, this is a podcast about the Dark Crystal after all. Um, Wait, what? I know. Oh. Yeah. The, you know, oh, I'm this out. Franchise? I'm out. Oh. I thought we were talking about Never Ending Story. Goodbye. Oh. <laughs> yeah, see you, Sky Babies. Bye, Moonchild. That would be a great Netflix series, by the way. The never-ending story. I mean, I love the first film. Holy bleep! Oh, my God. <laughs> Louie, won't you do it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, they totally should. Oh, man, that's such a tangent. Uh, Wouldn't that be a great show? Just... Seriously, when they when they mentioned Moonchild in, I think, episode eight, I, I lost my mind. I'm like, oh, totally. God, totally. you guys, don't, yeah. don't, <laughs> don't tease me. Don't tease me. <laughs> Uh, the many crossovers, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is just so, so exciting just to talk about Dark Crystal, especially with having 10 episodes to really deep dive into. Again, like, I mean, this episode, pretty much like every episode, there's always so much going on within these shows. So we'll definitely be talking about each episode, like, you know, as its own sort of context, but we will be talking about spoilers for the whole show, just to let you all know in advance um, about that. I guess I might start with you, with yourself, Jamie. I know um, it it starts with probably one of your sort of favorite introductions of you know one of the many episodes of the Dark Crystal: Age of Resistance. Yeah, so it it's a, a tight shot on Brea in this ridiculous, sort of whimsical pauper, almost reminds me of Christmas time headset, and she is now in the order of lesser service and her face like this puppet this performance let's just say it y'all dia dia brea i'm putting you almost did a combination of dia and brea dia um she is just incredible the performance everything about her her eye movements she is the most alive character in the show I did not expect to like her as much. Certainly, Deet is amazing. Rian is great. But Brea just blows everyone out of the water. Like, when she is on screen, she commands the screen. She owns it. She's just the way Alice Denean, I think that's her last name, moves. Is that is that her puppeteer, right? Alice Denean? Denean? Dinian? Yeah. Yeah. Dinian? I don't know how to say She's, it, but that's her, yeah. Just... The way she brings Brea to life reminds me of how li- alive Q 
Kira was way more so than Jen. And uh, just to see Brea out of her element in the forest, in the podlings, this whole sequence when they're giving the podlings baths and it's just pure magic. I would never have imagined it. And it's a testament to the minds of everyone involved in the show in terms of what they were able to come up with something that felt authentic and part of the mythology. Oh my God, I could go on about this forever, but I love the shot. I was dying laughing when I watched it again last night and uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mean, like I, I just love like just getting introduced to the podlings like a lot more and just, <laughs> just the craziness that they all do. Like one podlings just like eating dirt and is just loving it. And one's just jumping down and just being all muddy and um, they're just such um fun, fun creatures, I guess. Like, uh, of course, like with the film, like they were always sort of, you know, they're always being, you know, portrayed as like, like they're the most sort of Muppety of all the characters in the dark crystal, but they're, they're really unique in its own, in their own way. Like, yeah, they just love to have fun and, and just, just loving just seeing like, you know, them trying to take bubble baths um, with the galflings trying to clean them up. Yeah, it's just so hilarious, yeah. And actually, I mean, what was actually interesting about with the bubbles and stuff, actually, I think I listened to a pod and some other podcasts and actually said that they didn't use water. It, it is all just bubbles. And that's just because I think they said about doing water with puppets is a very challenging thing to do. Just all these like little moments like that where, you know, it's like that suspension of disbelief, Um, so much more, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. No, I, I think in your J.M. Lee interview or or Tobias's or somebody's, um, I think that's that's what they they said, right? They said, we love what you did with Skeksaw and the water tribes, the water clans, but it's too hard to do with puppets. And it makes you wonder if they're going to try their best to figure it out in future seasons. I don't know. Because I know a lot of people, I know there was like a the shot like back in episode two where uh, Rian jumps out of the castle and he lands in the water and does the swimming. But I mean, I think if you saw, I think I think in behind the scenes stuff that they just filmed him against a green screen and just, you know, made that motion and then, you know, CGI, you know, right. the, the water totally. as, as a layer, that sort of thing. They could do that for the, for the, the, um, the drenching easily, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I really hope that they can be able to sort of push that um, envelope like with season two with Galfling swimming and I think even with the Seafen clan, for example, I mean, I think they do a bit of swimming as well, you know, with their travels and um, so, yeah. Can, that, can that, we go on a slight tangent for the Seafen clan just really fast because we don't know much about them? Mm. Wouldn't it be interesting if the Seafen clan consisted of pirates or not pirates but like seafaring because they seem to be seafaring but what also what if there were like mergelfling as well wouldn't that be interesting that yeah that would be yeah whether there's like an offspring from from the seafing clan yeah like maybe they are water dwellers not just on top but underneath like we don't know anything about them i mean the the lore is open to having them be whatever they are i mean there there's so much mystery to who they are um like i want to know more about annika like that whole sequence with annika and brea and uh Kadia, it's just rife with story and i want to know more about it I don't think it's out of the question i mean the drenchen are amphibious um uh, Gelfling. 
Um, so it, they could totally kind of make a little story, a, a little side story about, you know, a little group of maybe mysterious mer gelfling out there, you know, maybe a, a, a group of drenchen that said, screw the drenchen, we're going to go live in the ocean. Maybe the Sifa are on their ships and like, what the heck is that, you know? Uh, maybe Kadia and the librarian ran into some mer gelfling out there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. I know, Could the, be. Po- the possibilities are really endless. And I mean, especially like, you know, with the relationship between like with these two clans, with the Vaprite and the Groton, it was sort of revealed in, I think, in Song of the Dark Crystal that they were actually one clan. So there used to be, I think, like, what, six sisters that represented their own sort of roles and stuff. And one of the sisters' roles was, of Thra, was to focus on the light and the shadow. And I think behind that story was that it was it became too much of a burden for this one sister to do these two, ta- two tasks, essentially, that they decided to split up split up into two um into two clans so they were they were, i think in the past they used to be the silver sea clan and then when they decided to split them up in, into two that's when we got sort of the vapor focusing on the light and then the grottens focusing on the dark or you know the past the history that sort of thing and i think that's when sort of like the the tomb of relics sort of comes into play with the grotten clan you know sort of collecting you know pieces of history and and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of potential for like different you know clans like that are more split up upon, you know, with with the world of the Dark Crystal. This uh, actually goes to a conversation uh, Ethan and I were having earlier in terms of the symbols for the Groton and the symbol for the Vapra, and they're very similar. One is like an upside down version of the other. Um, there's some a little bit differences in terms of like what's positioned where, but they're essentially the same symbol flipped and inverted yeah and i i will admit i mean i'll probably i'm probably going a lot lot further like you know talking about this episode but i know when um bria goes to the old um uh ceremony room and you know she's got that the moth that connects to the chair and she's actually going down i actually thought like oh you know at the time like what was going to happen next because i remember watching it like I only watched the first three episodes on the first night and then watched seven episodes, you know, the following day. And I actually thought that she was going to learn more about the relationship between the Vapra and the Grotten and how they were actually used to be this, you know, potentially this one clan. So Um, did I, I thought that she was going to get a little history lesson down there, you know? Um, And uh, the little, uh, what's his name? The little stone creature, his name is Lore. So I thought maybe he was going to, you know, give us some lore. I thought we were going to get a history lesson. I'm not mad at what did happen. I just, I, my expectations definitely took a leap. And I was like, oh, we're going a different direction. That's cool too. Yeah, yeah, to- absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, again, that would be something if we're going to see that, you know, down the track, like, you know, if they, yeah, if they do more more seasons of the show, I think that would be... um. Yeah, really cool. Just to get that bit of their insight and just sort of for them to know the sort of the connections, especially with the, with the two clans. But yeah, I, I think that would be um pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I just love like like with this episode, especially like at, at the very start where um Junie's talking to um Bria, and I like even the conversations that that she was having. Like you know, she she met this Brighton boy and she she made him some sweet 
many catneys and made him laugh, but parents didn't like that he wasn't a vaporin. And I was just like, I want to know what these mini catneys are. Whatever, whatever it was like some like dessert treat of, you know, of, of the Gelfling clans, that sort of thing. So I'm like, oh, it would be pretty cool to have a bit of a cookbook, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I ever did, you know, mini catneys can be one, one of the many things sort of on, on that tangent, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that they hinted at the idea that there's, I wouldn't say bad blood, but there's certainly prejudice between Gelfling clans. Like her parents were outraged that she would dare flirt with a, a Gelfling from another clan and she's being punished for it. Um, and it's just very, very subtle. It's a conversation in passing. A lot of people don't even really remember her character too much, but it sets up this infrastructure that Gelfling don't all get along based off of very sort of shallow aesthetics and you don't belong here and where do you belong and all of these things. Yeah, I guess it had a very sort of, you know, Romeo and Juliet sort of, um, you know, that storytelling that, you know, they're from different families that, you know, because they're from different families that you know, oh, it, it, it can't work, that sort of thing. I didn't even catch that. Juniet. Oh man, that'd be cool. Oh yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. You just blew my mind. Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's always fun to think about, you know, even like just the little moments within the episode. And again, like I sort of remember, I think there was a part in the episode where Bria, I think she mentions, oh, there was something to do, to do with um Sun Frenzy. And then um, Bria sort of mentions that she read about Sun Frenzy in Durkin's uh, Deliriums, uh, which of course was one of the sort of many Easter eggs with the show that um, Durkin was a reference to um, Vivian Lee with, uh, with Durkin being her maiden name, and which is something that we also got with um, episode one, um, which was with uh, Grillo's forgotten the name of the book now do you know the name of the book i'm talking about ethan of course lexicon of lesser astrography exactly yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah it's yeah. the only two books i wonder if we're gonna get more books in you know a season two but i thought it was super cute i think it's pronounced grigio um grigio's lexicon of lesser astrography and then uh, durkin's deliriums um i thought that was super cute i can't wait for more little easter eggs like that yeah i i know i'd just be so curious that there's just a lot more that are that are out there that just haven't been discovered yet so yeah i'd be curious you know just as we're watching through all these shows and just finding all these little moments um like that yeah and so like this is again you know just so many great moments from the show and especially like with um uh when bria manages sort of to to make a run <laughs> out of the order of the lesser services and and she actually meets up with um, Tavra and, you know, Bria just sort of telling her story to Tavra. And and even just that little moment, like, uh, I think um, I think we actually saw this from the Dark Crystal, the Age Resistance feature at, um, that Tavra says, uh, remember the bonds of sisterhood can be tested, but never broken. And just them two just embracing each other. It's just like, oh, God, just, yeah. All the feels right there. <laughs> I'm not crying. You're crying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I I love that scene. They're the I do too. The best. And I love Tavra. I love that Tavra is sort of the unification of both Celadon and the extremes of Celadon and the extremes of Brea. And it goes back into sort of the three being one, where you have these three sisters, and the balance of these sisters is Tavra, where she understands where 
Celadon is coming from, but she also understands where Brea is coming from, and she understands the role of the Vapra and the Almadra. Like, Tavra's a really, really, really wonderful character. Um, and again, very much alive. And that scene, I think it was in episode two, where... Yeah, it was in episode two towards the end where Brea is sent to order the Order of Lesser Services and T- uh, T- Tavra walks by Brea and she goes, stay strong or be strong. And just that walk and her sister not casting her out where Celadon sort of like writing Brea off. Tavra isn't doing that. Tavra is that balance, that kind of Tavra is the love that, well, let's just meet each other in love. Like, let's just try and understand each other. Whereas Brea has a hard time loving Celadon and Celadon has a hard time loving Brea. And Tavra is sort of, again, the balance of that. Yeah. And I will actually say that I think I really love the Tavra, like in this show, probably compared to Tavra in the book. Um, Just thinking about it, because I think Tavra in the book, she was a bit harsh, I think at times um, from my memory, Ethan. I I don't know what what you thought about the differences between what they did uh, with Tavra like in the show uh, compared to with um, Joe's books. No, uh, Tavra in the books was kind of cold and um, like she definitely was quiet. And well, let me preface this with I, I wasn't, I did not like Tavra in the books. I just, I didn't really think much of her, but Tavra in the series, she was quiet, just like Tavra in the books, but she, she definitely was observant. She would, you know, she, she sees both sides, I guess, you know, like, like, you know, she looks at Celadon and like, I think you're mad at yourself. You know, you're not, you know, like she's very observant. She's quiet. You know, she jokes that she's the fun one. And I just think, well, you know, when when we do meet up with Tavra, uh, Naya, and Kylan, Tavra definitely is the hard-ass warrior. She slams her sword onto the table, and she's like, what up? You know? So I take it back. She's not very much different from the books. Um, you know, I just, I guess, I I like Tavra with her sisters better than Tavra with, Naya and Kylan. It was def- definitely a cool dimension to her that, I mean, I don't know. I like it's it's strange. I just I I could I could follow a whole series of just Tavra. I think she's she's quiet but not boring. I don't know how to to put my finger on it. Like she she's such a cool character. I don't know how to explain it. Like Seldon, Brea, and Tavra, they're so different. And I love them all in their own special way. And I, I can't believe how well they pulled that off. But anyway, yeah, take take it all back. Tavra is not that much different than she is in the books. And I just realized that just now. It's just a different context. Yeah, me too, yeah. And I think I actually sort of liked, I mean, in in that, you know, when she was saying that she's she's got to head off somewhere and it sort of reminds me, oh, you know, she's going to go... You know, she's going to go to the castle and she's going to go to, to see Naya, the, um, you know, with the drenching clan and the swamp of Sog. So I kind of like that little, just that, I think that little connective tissue with that. So I thought that was, that was a pretty neat thing. 
uh, even though it wasn't mentioned on the show at all, but you can just sort of imagine that, okay, you know, we know where she's probably going to go. It's just, I mean, you know, to go on like with Bria's story, I mean, I guess you must have loved that moment, um, Jamie, when, when Bria's sort of like running up the stairs in the library and, and she's going to, you know, flying down from the library, going through hurrah and entering like the, the throne room. Yeah, that was a great, great moment. Uh, yeah, yeah, just again, her character is really, really phenomenal and she steals every scene she's in. And when she's in each scene, she commands the scene. Um, but also she has a very different role than Rian. And we've talked about this before where Rian is, Bray is discovering the truth. The truth has been revealed to Rian and Deet is um, going to tell another truth. And so Brea's truth, Brea is a princess. She's sort of, she is the daughter of the Almadra and her world has been rocked. Whereas, and so has Rian's as well. Well, I guess, I guess all three of them, their world is changing and they're trying to inform everyone. Um, but to see Brea step out of her, what's expected of her and to take these bold risks, and the moment when she realizes she could fly over and into the castle, it's just, yeah, it's a really, really great thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I like, again, like just sort of the marvel of some of these shots of like, like even I was sort of looking back of, you know, seeing Bria running up the stairs in the library. And I'm just thinking if like that shot of her running up the stairs, if that's all CGI or whether like, whether that is uh, puppets or, um, yeah, it's just, um, Really, yeah. I, I, I just, I just find that you know, like just those little moments. I love not knowing. They blend that so perfectly. You know, it's puppet, and then maybe CGI, and you know, and then puppet again, and you don't really know, and you don't really want to know. Or at least I don't. It, they, they do it so seamlessly. Um, I imagine it's probably CGI. I, I am curious. Like the original film used uh, little actors for the Skeksis and the Gelflings, and sometimes even children for the Gelfling. And I'm really curious why, as far as I know, I don't think they ever used that at, as a an option. And I don't, I, I, I'm personally kind of curious about that. And I, 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 I kind of liked the, you know, even Agra running through the halls or running through the orrery. That was... Um, I know his name, Mike Emmons, right? Uh, the original? I, yeah, in the original, Mike Emmons was, I'm messing up his name, was the, uh, he, he's a little actor who would dress up in uh, an Agra body puppet and, and, and act her out. And, you know, I t- now I'm curious because we're jumping all over the place. I'm sorry. But later, when Agra's kind of doing some kicks and flips in the crystal chamber, I mean, I, I don't think that's CGI. Do you think that's the puppet being manipulated by green screened? Oh, man. No, not at all. Although I, that's that scene's actually, oh, totally. But that scene's weird. Not weird, but I had a little bit. It didn't seem to be the continuity seemed off where one moment she's running around the crystal chamber and then dancing. And then the next moment you see her, see her hop, hobbling um, like she's a puppet um, where she's going. Ah, ah. Um, yeah, that was just a, it was sort of odd cutting back and forth between 
this character that seemed to have no problem walking to a character that was now has to use the cane. And that was strange to me. But aside from that, like the character of Augur, which we haven't really discussed yet, even though she makes her first appearance in episode two, um, she's, she's pretty awesome. She's pretty flawless. Yeah. I, I think, you know, let's, let, let's talk about Augur talking about her. We might as well yeah, get into sort of her story. And I guess like, I mean, it was sort of, like that was the one thing I was really surprised with the show is I originally thought that Olga was going to have a much smaller role. Like I thought she was just going to be a cameo that she might appear in a couple episodes here and there, like, you know, at the start, like say at the start of the show and at the end of the show, everything else is just going to be all about the gelflings, that sort of thing. Like what we got from out of the show, I was surprised of how much we actually got um, of Olga, like more of Olga than what I sort of, anticipated or you know more expectations i guess to an extent but then i sort of realized that she is thra so it's like her presence is is always going to be felt throughout the whole story with age of resistance even when even when we don't see her you know in scenes and stuff that her presence is, is felt throughout the show i thought uh age of resistance's uh handling in writing of agra was the best writing Augur's ever had as a character uh the novels the comics even the original film i feel i i feel like they took Augra and they understood her role in this universe and they they handled her perfectly and it blew me away i i, I was right there with you phil i thought she'll she'll just be in the background just like in the original movie just like show up kind of probably ramble some gobbledygook at you and like then they go on their quest right but no she she does have a hand in this she does um she does things as and you can tell that there there's i guess like streams of destiny there's lots of possibilities that lie before her and is she's almost nervous to step on a butterfly, so to speak, because she doesn't want to. She could very easily tip fate in a certain direction or the other, and she's. I can't decide if she's trying to shape it toward something. Like, I, I guess I you know she she is trying to shape fate toward something, but at the same time she won't force. Gelfling and other creatures toward it. Uh, like when Celadon shows up in the dream space and she says, y'all are traitors. She says, okay. You know, different Gelfling, different path. Boom, you're out. And in some possibilities, Celadon, clearly to Agra, um, was supposed to have a different path. But Celadon's um, decisions still count. And if Celadon doesn't want to be a part of this, Augur's not going to force it. And so fate goes in a different direction. And it really makes you wonder about the future. I don't think they're going to contradict the film. That'd just be stupid. I bet they said, that's stone. We're not going to contradict that. But I really wonder what topsy-turvy turns we're going to go on to get to the movie. Um, I think they posted some article about the writer saying, don't let the movie be a crystal ball for 
a potential season two of Age of Resistance. And uh, that's interesting to me. I, I, I'm off on a tangent, but what I'm trying to say is Agra in her role is so unique and so special and so incredible. And it's exciting. I mean, she is the planet. She is the crystal. And she's not going to force people into, I guess, her her plan. And so it's a very – it's interesting. It's going to be a fun ride, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, I mean, this was sort of – I mean, for me, it was a shocking moment, um, like, seeing – like, just when she sees the crystal and it's, like, all corrupted and just the performances – like especially with Donald Kimball who did the voice and the puppeteering as well. But with Donna Kimball, like she just, I reckon they would have been a hard time trying to ADR that scene, uh, just pulling the weight and then the emotion, you know, the devastation that Olga is having at that moment, seeing the crystal, you know, really sick. And also, yeah, I mean, that was the most interesting thing with like, with that moment, it was just her seeing, a vi- you know, visions from the crystal that is actually like of, of herself um, from, from the past, sort of the past talking to to the future, or, or not to the future, but to the present Olga, the, the conversations that they were sort of having back and forth. I thought that was a really interesting um, aspect, yeah. Kind of makes you wonder if Agra now can talk to an Agra future, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I guess like with the crystal, I mean, it sort of, it, it just sort of made me, it just remind me again, I guess, um, with another franchise with Lord of the Rings, especially with um, you know, the the mirror of Galadriel, where Frodo like looks into the mirror, which is I feel like it's sort of almost like what is doing, you know, looking at the crystal and seeing the visions, you know, things that were things that were, things that are, and maybe and perhaps some things that have not yet come to pass. So I mean that would be super interesting if they I mean we we sort of had that like with with the tree, with the sanctuary tree with detail as the tree was able to sort of project visions from the future so we have sort of those kind of aspects so yeah it was just such a yeah like for, for me i was really surprised like seeing olga from the past you know communing with olga of the present at this at this era and just really showing olga you know how you know how the skixes have really corrupted the world and and that i mean the crystal of truth tells the truth essentially so so yeah and like she was just shocked and just devastated and I think she knew from that point that she had to, she has to do something about it for certain. Yeah. What's interesting though, as well with the character of Agra that I love is that Agra just didn't wake up and say, Oh, something's wrong with Thra. Obviously she knew something was wrong with Thra, but also the brilliance of the writing of the characters that Agra knew she was in part responsible. She decided to be let distraction take her away. And in that distraction, the world started to go dark. She, she stopped being involved with sort of the everyday of Thra and what's going on in this, this planet that is also her and this crystal that is also her. She gave that up for distraction. And again, these are when stories are really powerful. When oftentimes when things are going wrong, the question is, well, what part do you have in this? Because we live in a society in a time where everyone wants to blame everyone else for their problems or their issues, when in fact, most of the time, we are partly responsible for where we're at in our lives. And I love that they made Agra flawed. Um, but to your point, Phil, I also thought that 
Augur would be more mysterious for most of the show and that they would talk about her for a while and they would like talk about this mythical Augur who might not even exist and then she would appear like later on. But and so I was also surprised that she was on the scene so early and so much. I mean, I think she was incredible and amazing and I love the character. Um, but she she also occupies that space of Gandalf very wise. But again, even a great thing about Gandalf is he was also flawed. Um, and again, these these writers and these filmmakers knew and know what makes a story good. And that flawed characters are really what make good stories great. That they're not perfect. That they realize that we all have a part in this. We all have a part to play. And Agra really is, has to search herself to figure out, well, what's wrong? And what is happening? And how do I find out what's going on? And just her having to listen to Thra and that, that journey that she's on to figure out what Thra is telling her. It's really great. Um, whereas it's, it would have been easy just to say, to have her listen to something, a tree, put her ear onto a tree and the tree tells her all the stuff that's happened. And she'd be like, oh, I got to change it. But no, they didn't do that. Augur had to work. She had to work to understand, to, to find silence and to be quiet so she could listen. And uh, again, really, really brilliant. Yeah, it's just um, the beauty of the writing that, I mean, especially with everyone who, who wrote who wrote all the episodes and especially with um, uh, Jeff and Will who, you know, developed the show and really broke it all down like you know with all these characters and they, i think yeah they just did an, an amazing job and and it's just so weird that we're just talking about dark crystal you know that you know we got 10 hour, 10 more hours of dark crystal than than we ever imagined in our, in our lifetimes it's um it, it is it is still very like a surreal kind of experience that that we've all been having like with the show and and you know with all the fans and new fans it's 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 just been so much fun like, I mean, I, I really want to talk about this, like these moments from the show. And that, of course, is to do with Deet and Hup um, as they sort of head to the the stone in, in the wood. And I just love sort of, um, you know, entering the village and, you know, it's sort of like, oh, you know, we're going to gonna take a break here and, you know, just to, just to wind down for a bit. And also, actually, what was interesting about this episode was it actually had a bit of foreshadowing when um, Deet is sort of, you know, looking at, you know, you know, the flames of all the, you know, where all the swords are. She's like, you know, I wonder what what it's for and why is it full of swords? Which I thought that was really interesting, you know, that the great thing about, you know, watching all these episodes again is just seeing all those little moments where it's like, ah, oh, you, know, you know, you know, we actually go to that place later on in the show and that's, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I thought that was like really, really cool in that respect. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, and, and so, I mean, the other thing I did love about is, um, especially like when they're about to going to drink some brew. And I just love that one shot of, um, of Harp. I think it's a wide shot with, um, Harp and Deet, but Harp is like moving, like walking towards and just staring at the breweries. It's like, it's just like, I don't know. I just, I think I just love, I mean, well, I love the dark side of the dark crystal, but I also love sort of the fun and, and the joy of joyfulness. And, and I mean, like, that just brings me joy, I guess, you know, just seeing Hop, just, just drinking some brew and <laughs> pushing like the little fizz gig get, gets in the way. And, um, and I mean, you know, you see Deet who's, you know, trying to get along with these other gelflings and just the moment like when the gelflings are sort of 
pushing Dita away and then Hup notices, notices it and he sort of gets really, you know, triggered and, you know, to, to sort of launch an attack uh, to protect Dita. I thought that whole fight sequence with um with Hup, you know, just launching up in the air to attack the Gelflings. He gets his spoon out. I just thought, you know, that, that was just such another, like, laugh out loud moment for me. Like, every time I'm just watching that scene, I'm just like, you know, it, it just brings me so much joy. <laughs> I love that too. The way his little head shakes. That was awesome. And it it's worth to note how incredible that set for Stone in the Wood is. I mean, it's of the sets that we've seen, I mean everything is dazzling and marvelous and but that Stone in the Wood set, just watching Deet explore and just the light and um how there's just so much wonder and there's so much to see and there's so much for Deet to see and it feels also the dichotomy of it, it feels so warm and welcoming, but in fact, they are not warm. They are not welcomed there. But just, just the, the homes sort of in the trees. I just, I could, mar- I could look at that set all day long and just find new things. It's really beautiful. It's one of my favorite sequences in the film, uh, including uh, Rian's uh, approach, uh, approaching the Madra in the hurt her throne room or whatever that is, which is the houses of the old ones. Although there's some speculation as to if that's the same structure as what Kira and Jen explore, because the chair, the, that, uh, Farah, Madra Farah is sitting in. There's a little bit of a difference. Well, a lot of bit of a difference in terms of the, the, uh, the symbol that's on it. Don't the symbol that's on the one that Kira sits in is not the same symbol that the one Madra Farah sits in. Um, but I, I had assumed, I mean, but it, it seems like the same place because the columns are similar. I don't know, though. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, uh, I think they just redecorate later. I mean, there's still plenty of time between when when uh, Farah is sitting on that chair and then Kira, and we don't know what happens in between. But uh, That's true. They could redo the chair or, I mean, the the, the place goes through a bit of a you know, Rian sort of all the lights fall and all that stuff is happening. So yeah, the, the, the gates on either side of, um, Farrah's chair, uh, are the same as the gates that Jen and Kira walk through. And so if you look at the layout of stone in the wood, um, Jen and Kira actually don't enter stone in the wood. We don't see that in the, the film. They, they walk through, um, this hole in the corridor and then walk through the gates that uh, take you into the throne room. And in Age of Resistance, straight across the... Am I messing this up? Straight across from the th- throne is those wooden doors that go out into the village proper. And Jen and Kira, if anything, Jen and Kira probably escaped from the Chamberlain through those ruins like the ruins of the village proper, but we don't see that in the film. Um, so I think that the wall of destiny is, I don't even think we see the wall that would become the wall of destiny. I think that's off to the side. Yeah. I've, I've analyzed this, the scenes a lot, really the only problem so far is that the stonewood sigil is on everything and not the, in my opinion, the Ariel. It's a, a more simplified uh, Ariel, but I think that's what's on the the chair in um, 
in the film. I could be wrong, but I, I mean, maybe they're trying to say, no, I don't know. I mean, I think the the REL, the simple, the super simple version of the REL is just that, that three-leaf um, symbol. And I think that's what they're kind of throwing on there. I mean, they could have done the whole, I don't know. I go back. Anyway, I'm pretty sure that's uh, the... The, the Gelfling ruins on the map and the stone in the wood on the map are in the same darn place. That That is the Gelfling ruins from the film. We just got to figure out where that symbol comes from and how that comes into play, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of questions that sort of, you know, that we're wanting to be resolved. And I mean, that was one of the things I was kind of um, surprised, I guess, with the show. I, I thought, I actually thought with this season um, as a whole, I thought we were really going to get sort of that Gelfling gathering, you know, the whole creation of the prophecy, essentially, the, you know, that we all read and heard about, that sort of thing. I thought that was something that might might have picked up in this season. But I think, um, but I think, which was a good thing as well, that I, I, it's sort of great that, you know, with the show, even though it didn't go through, you know, all the questions, you know, all, all the answers, all, all that kind of thing. But I kind of like that it sort of gave the show the breathing space that it needed to really reestablish, you know, getting everyone... Get, coming back to the to world of the, of the Dark Crystal, getting to know all the Galfin clans, getting to know about the Skeksis and Olgra and all the characters and, and taking our time. And yeah, I mean, with, with a season two, whether they might do that to, um, uh, you know, to establish sort of that creation of, of the Wall of Destiny and, and all that. So I think that would be a really exciting moment if it ever happens here within the show. This is just my interpretation of what we saw. But I, I think that the prophecy itself is about 379 years old. I think that the heretic and the wanderer, they, they say they saw the future and it lies in the hands of the Gelfling. And that's what they're fighting to, to do. I think that the wall of destiny that you see in the film, if anything, is just the, the, the prophecy written on a wall. I think in... This might be brave of them. I don't know. I They might just be downplaying the wall. The wall might just be kind of... The, the, here's the prophecy that uh, written on a wall. And it might not be... So, in other words, uh, you know, before the prophecy that that wall was built, like, formed, and the prophecy started with the wall... But now I think that the the prophecy was glimpsed hundreds of years ago, and it's just now being revealed and talked about and shared with people. And maybe I don't I don't know how the wall is going to come into play, but I don't I don't know. That might just be like a physical display for all Gelfling to see. Of this is the you know the four hundred year old prophecy for all Gelfling to see. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. And that, and yeah, yeah, and that they just they just discover it for the first time. Yeah, I mean that that's gonna be really interesting. I mean, especially as we go on, like later on in the shows. I mean, uh, to talk about um, the wanderer and, and the heretic, and just just the you know even just glimpsing sort of into their history. You know, that it's just like oh, so love to know more about about their story. So it's just um yeah, it it just raises you know lots of questions, but questions that just makes us all think and i think that's a, sort of a great thing like that we can have like with these shows just sort of 
talking about and really discussing and analyzing and just having fun. And yeah, it's just, it's just an incredible time. No, that's the whole point we're trying to avoid is, I mean, yeah, they could have had a checklist of like, okay, we got, we got to make the wall. We got to, we got to show this, we got to do that. But the fact that they're holding back and in, in not showing us the creation of the wall in the, in the prophecy and so on and so on shows to me that the, the writers of this, um, they're, they're not going down the path of, you know, when you watch the star Wars prequel, you know, they're, they're constantly winking and nodding at the future that you know is coming up. You know the Empire is going to rise. You know Luke Skywalker and Leia is going to be born separated and, and Padme is going to die and so on and so on. And and with Dark Crystal, you know, everybody, you know, the writers, they know that you know the future. And now they're trying to not trick us, but surprise us. Um, like, yeah, we'll get to that future, but it's not going to be the way you think. And that's the whole point of Age of Resistance is, you know, you know, the Gartham didn't come about the way you probably thought they would. And the, the wall and the prophecy aren't going to come about the way you probably thought they would. And that's, it's making Age of Resistance worth watching because a lot of people when they first heard about the show is, well, we know how it's going to end, right? What's the point of watching it? And I guess this is our answer is, well, hold on. This is not going to go the way you think. It's noteworthy to say that we know how it ends sort of begins for Jen and Kira. We don't know how the story ends for Deet and Rian and everyone else. We don't know if they survive. We don't know their stories. And, Re- the reality is there are nuggets, as we've discussed before, with the Grunax and the, you know, with Chamberlain's um, admission of, I thought we killed him, but obviously they didn't kill them all because there's a couple more surviving that they found. So there could be more. Thra is really big. In order to, you know, destroy all the Gelflings, they'd have to go to sort of the ends, each section or quadrant of Thra to make sure absolutely every Gelfling was destroyed. We don't know if that's actually possible. Um, so there's there's a lot of mystery there. And I, I actually think that the Wall of Destiny isn't created. What I think is that um, Ergo and the Heretic know, they have this sort of divine knowledge that yes, the Gelfling are going to play a role in in the reunification of us and the defeat of the Skeksis, but they don't know for sure how. And I think that there is, you know, I've offered this before, but I don't know if it's going to be an Urskek or who, some type of divine intervention to help spell it out to the Gelflings. Cause I think the Gelflings are just trying to, they're just kind of going like, Oh, we've discovered this. Let's do it. They don't really know what to do. They don't really, now they have the shard at the end of the show. Um, and I guess they have to heal it. They have to find out, like, can they just heal the shard? Does it have to be during a great conjunction? What exactly do they have to do? And it seems like, again, we've talked about this, like, certainly Ethan and I and all three of us, but, like, the the figures on the Wall of Destiny, who are they? Where is this from? It looks like this information was passed down from these sages, from these very wise monk-like Gelflings that we've never seen before. Um, but who knows? There's so much possibility. And I love it. I love that it could be, you know, just like Augur said, like I've seen, you know, um, 
there are many endings laid before us, some good, some bad, but I think there's a lot of story possibilities laid before us as well. And that's, again, it's, it's just a testament of a really good story that we are coming up with 15 different ideas of where it could go. Absolutely. And it just, I mean, again, it just made me thought like, what if there's actually multiple Wall of Destinies? Wow, that's a good idea. And, you know, the Gelfling's got to work out which one's the right one or, you know, all these different outcomes. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like talking about like sort of like, you know, with with the Grunaks that were introduced um, to this episode. And I know um, that they really resembled the the Macrax. And again, it does make me think whether they were originally going to be called Macrax for the show, but whether they had to change it up because of some of the events that happened in creation myths or or whether they just um, wanted just to, you know, make, make the Grunax sort of its own thing. So sort of like as a, as a different breed, I guess, to the Macrax. And I, and I essentially love that little moment between the Chamberlain and Skek Tech and how the Chamberlain's like, you know, I'm sorry for what I've done, but here is some Grunax to, to make it up for it. And then Skeptic's like, all right, you know, I accept sort of thing. <laughs> I thought that was like a, a great little moment between like the two Skeksis. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I think we'll have to wrap up for this episode of Trial by Stone. Again, thank you so much for listening to us, you know, discussing about each episode of the show. And I think, like I've said, you know, there's so much that happens in, in these episodes that I think we're going to be revisiting them for quite some time. Um, but you know, again, thank you so much and definitely stay tuned for more episodes of trial by stone. Trial by stone, the dark crystal podcast is a production of three point edit. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can do so at dark at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. If you'd like to know more about the podcast, visit our website at www.darkcrystalpodcast.com. Thank you so much and stay tuned for the next episode of Trial by Stone.